Our scripture verse, our scripture text for today is Acts 13, that uh, wonderful missionary effort beginning, uh, Acts 13, verses 4 to 12. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. We're hearing a lot these days about... Uh, the war that's going on between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, I got to admit, I have not done a deep dive into things that are going on over there. I don't know a lot about geopolitical global events. But uh, I, do, I do see a lot of things like this on the news, a lot of maps uh, showing where different forces are amassing and going and what territory has been taken and all these kinds of good things. And I, I'm just confused because I don't live there and I don't know my Ukraine-Russia border geography all that well. I can't pronounce most of the cities on this, on this map. And I also understand that during wartime, there's, there's what I call the, well, what others call the fog of war. Like a report could come out, but is it true? We don't know. Uh, this is like maybe hearsay or rumor. There's also propaganda. I mean, if, if uh, for example, if the Ukrainians can get most of the Western media to print that the, uh, or to say that the Ukrainians are pushing back and winning against the Russians, that will demoralize or let the air out of the spirits of the Russians, and maybe they'll go home qu more quickly. Um, I'm unfamiliar with the territory. It's far away. For all these reasons, we, I don't really know what's happening. I feel like I really don't know what's happening, and it's difficult to know exactly where the battle lines are. And I just want to say this morning that, that that I think is the question that this text is going to answer this morning. The big question we're going to deal with is where is the battlefront between God and Satan today? And I think the answer to this question may surprise you because you may, like many, think that the battlefront is in the, is in the culture war that's going on in the United States and around the world today. Or perhaps you think that it's uh, a political war, a political, the, the battle lines are on the political front or 
the local front. But uh, I wonder if you know, or if you could even answer the question, where, where is the battlefront between God and Satan today? And so we're going to dive into this text and see what God has to say. For context, just remember that the, the, really the, the missionary effort to go about and plant churches is just beginning. This is the very beginning. In last week's text, God, the Holy Spirit, told the church at Antioch to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that he had for them. And here today we see Paul and Barnabas and, uh, Paul and, Barnabas and John being sent out. So the first thing that we want to see in this text is this. Is it the, it, here's kind of the nature of the battle. First of all, we see that God sends his people to go make disciples. Verses 4 and 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. Seleucia is the nearest port city from Antioch. It's a very interesting. If you go back and read your history about how Antioch, the third largest city in the empire at that time, was formed, it's very fascinating stuff. I don't have time to go into it today, but Seleucia was a city that was also established by the same guy, Seleucus, and um, it was kind of meant to be the port city uh, of Antioch, which was a very, very large city. Anyway, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, and when they arrived at Salamis, Salamis is the nearest port city to Seleucia, so they took the straightest, shortest trip they possibly could. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So we talked about them being sent by the Holy Spirit last week, so we're not going to recover that today, but, but let's just take a look at what's going on in this text. God is sending his people to go make disciples. First of all, we see that he's sending Saul and Barnabas and John Mark. And I put for now, because John Mark in the next passage is going to abandon ship and head back to, not Antioch, he's going to head back to Jerusalem. But... Uh, these men are on their way, and they are on Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. I'll put up a map in a second. Barnabas is from Cyprus. We learn this in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, where we read, Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. And then it goes on. So we learn a lot about Barnabas in that one, in that one verse. We learn that he's from Cyprus. We learn that he doesn't go by his given name. He goes by his nickname. Typically, you earn a nickname for the way that you are, right? I got a lot of stuff done on Friday, and my wife was marveling, and she said, well, how did you get so much done? And I said, they call me Speedy Teedy. <laughs> and she rolled her eyes and laughed at me, and, and she said, no, they don't. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so... Joseph is his name, but he's not called that. He's called Barnabas, and the text tells us, the Bible tells us, it means son of encouragement. There's something about Barnabas who is a guy who builds people up, who gives people encouragement, who, who helps them to get the energy that they need to go do the task that God has called them to do. Remember, Barnabas was sent from Jerusalem to Antioch to serve the church there. He got there, and he's like, oh, well, we need some more help, so he went up to Tarsus and got Paul. Barnabas is a connector. He connects people together and helps them to carry out the work. He's also a Jew. It says right here that he's a Levite. Okay, So it, it makes some sense that if they're going to go start planting churches, and this is their first kind of baby step in that direction, they're just taking a step to go and spread the gospel around, that they go to 
territory they're familiar with. And since Barnabas is from Cyprus, that's where they go. I've got a map up here on the screen. This is the Mediterranean Sea, and uh, I'll zoom in here in a second. But this is kind of like a big part of the known world at the time, or the, the heavily populated world, Roman Empire. But if we zoom in here a little bit, you'll, you can see that Paul and Barnabas uh, and John Mark, they start here in Antioch, not too far from Antioch, is Seleucia on the coast, and then they go to Salamis, and then probably not in a straight line like this, because that's, yeah, that's just probably a map drawing, but they end up in Paphos, where they are then going to depart to their next assignment. Cyprus is, a, is, a, is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, very diverse cultures there, because Cyprus was conquered by so many different empires over the years. It's a fascinating historical study. Uh, I once served under a pastor who was a missionary on Cyprus and uh, talks about its beauty and its cultural diversity. But anyway, uh, that's where these guys are going first. This is their first baby steps into church planting. And that involves taking risks. They are taking risks. These three men are risking a lot through their travel. They have possibilities of danger on the seas, over land, uh, of, you know, robbers, you know, along the way. Uh, they're taking risks and resources that God is going to provide uh, enough food and, and money and everything that they need to carry out their work. And then also uh, the possibility of hostility by others, and they're going to see that, we're going to see that today. They're going to be opposed today uh, in this text that we're going to be reading. You know, there is, a, I would say, some within the Christian church well, I guess I'll, I'll illustrate it by telling you this story. There's been a few times, not many, but a few times in my Christian experience where a young person in the church, because I used to be a youth pastor, a young person in the church was coming up and they really thought, really felt like that the Lord wanted them to be in some sort of full-time missions work. And for reasons that I can't fully explain, they were dissuaded from this. They were, they were persuaded not to by those in their life that were older than them, sometimes parents, sometimes older other folks. And the reason that was cited was, that's too risky. Please don't ever let that happen here at Delaware Bible Church. If you've got a young person in your life that wants to go be a missionary, uh, encourage that. Uh, I, I would encourage that if I were you. Uh, recently, as you know, we've sent Beth Ann Tobin to Guatemala to serve children there, teaching and, and overseeing some things there. And you could say, well, that's too risky. She's a single young lady, and she's going into a, a strange culture, a foreign culture to her, um, and there's risks involved. And my answer to that is yes. There are risks involved. Jesus said when he walked the face of the earth, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We have the news of eternal life. We have the message of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And it's our job to spread that around, to get that message out, and to minister that message to people. And that is going to involve risk. 1 Peter 4, 12-14 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But... Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's something that is fantastic about a, a believer carrying out God's mission and experiencing the same sufferings that Christ did. 
Um, there's something that puts us in fellowship, and a deeper fellowship, a more intimate fellowship with him. And so, I would encourage you not to take risks like hang gliding. If you're afraid of heights, especially, maybe not a good thing to do, right? Or, um, you know, uh, uh, be, be very careful. You know, I don't know, maybe this is the engineer in me, but when I'm at the county fair and I'm walking around the rides, I'm doing this. That boat looks loose. I don't, I don't think we're going to ride that one, you know. There is a time to be mindful of taking risks, but, but let's be wise about uh, dissuading ourselves or persuading others to not take risks for the most important thing that you can take a risk for, which is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a Southern Baptist journal, you read the story, Joel DeHart served as an English second language instructor among Afghan refugees in Pakistan from 87 to 91, the day he was taken hostage. Joel knew several local languages and deeply loved the culture and the people. Few would have been better prepared for captivity. He was in a six-month forced vacation in the Afghan mountains by a people hostile to the gospel. Joel, Joel's preparedness for captivity was rooted in a faith that focused solely on a sovereign and good God. His rock-solid foundation in God's sovereignty and goodness is, is seen clearly in his journal where he wrote things like this. God has the upper hand no matter what the plans of man he rules and reigns above. He does his will. He is just in his sovereignty, and you'll not be, and you'll not, I'm sorry, he said, just trust his sovereignty, and you'll not discouraged be, but live each day with joy and worship him. The story ended well in, in Joel's case. He was eventually released, but not before he had the opportunity to endear himself to his captors to, uh, to uh, be given the opportunity to teach that his captor's children English as a second language because he knew that that would give them a tremendous advantage in the world. So he was uh, serving and training uh, his captor's children in uh, English as a second language, and that gave him gospel opportunity with his captors. Did, did they all convert, and was it all a pretty ending picture? No. But he had the opportunity to share the message of life. At the end of the day, Taking risks is all about uh, self-denial and spiritual combat. Self-denial and spiritual combat. We walk around this earth oftentimes asking questions like, what about me? What about my life? What about my ability to build a family? What about my happiness? What about my ability to just remain stateside and earn money? Wouldn't that be a good thing? You know, there's a, curios, uh, there's a curious thing that I've noticed. Delaware Bible Church is still one of those weird churches that has missions conferences every year. And um, here's one of the things I've noticed about our missionaries. I've never had one of them come up to me, because I, I do share private moments with our missionaries where we talk frankly about how they're doing and what's going on. I've never had a missionary come up to me and say, you know, I really wish I would have stayed in the States until I made my first million. I say, That's literally never happened. I've never met a missionary who, even though they went through a life of uh, hardship, of need, of sacrifice, of self-denial, that they came out on the other side going, you know, I wish, I wish I had more money. 
Some of them do wish that they had been more bold to share. It's all about spiritual combat, doing battle each and every day with the following ideas. Is this, is this worth it? Is pouring my life into ungrateful people sometimes worth it? Is it worth it to, to you know, we're, we're going to see next week John Mark, who's with them, serving them, acting as an assistant to them. He's going to ditch them and run back home to Jerusalem. Is it worth it to experience the betrayal that I'm also uh, often suffering? Is there too much danger? And then, like Elijah, it can sometimes feel like there's no support. No one's checking in on me. No one's, is anybody even out there helping me? It can, it can be very lonely out on the mission field. I want to say uh, something, and I'm going to hurt your feelings, and I, and I don't apologize. There's a lot of people on social media making a lot of statements about the world and our faith, uh, and they don't have any skin in the game. They don't ever take a risk uh, for the Lord, but they love to tell everyone else how to do it. Please don't be that person. Shut off your computer, put away your keyboard, and uh, go have a difficult conversation with somebody who needs to hear it. I want to adjust your attitude before we move on. I want to adjust your attitude about one thing. How will you feel, ask yourself this question, how will you feel when you're mocked and shamed for being a follower of Jesus Christ? Here's what the Bible says you should feel. Honor. Privilege that you get to suffer along was something similar to, not exactly like, because he was perfect and died unjustly, a horrific death, but you get to suffer in some way like Jesus. Feel honor, not shame. Feel honor. Paul and Barnabas and John also focused on the institutions of thought. They went to the synagogues, right? Um, that's a bold move. These, these Christians going into the Jewish synagogues. Now, why did they go there? Probably for several reasons. Number one, they probably, because they were all Jewish, they probably had an open door, right? They probably were welcome to come into the synagogues because of their heritage. Perhaps Paul was uh, exercising that principle that we know about in the Bible. You know, the gospel is to go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So he started in um, these Jewish synagogues, these regions of thought. Maybe he was he was hopeful that these synagogues would transform into churches where believers would, a place where believers would gather and go out and share the gospel. But this was his strategy. His strategy was to go into these places, these synagogues that already had a, a, a biblical a, a worldview that said there is one God, not a Roman Empire worldview that said there's many gods, but to go into these Jewish synagogues and to begin their reasoning with them about Jesus. You know, there's a lot of talk going out, going on out on the public square these days in our institutions of thought, and it seems like uh, we're being, uh, Christian thought is being pushed out. And um, I want to I tell all of you that are working in a public institution, whether that be a school the government, law enforcement, um, any, public, any one of our public institutions that are followers of Jesus Christ and are there working diligently every day to love your neighbor as yourself and to just be a truthful person 
thank you. Hang in there. You're doing the Lord's work. Will you face ostracism? Yes. But should you continue to pursue to be a, a positive influence there? Yeah, I think so. Until it's very, very clear that you have to compromise your beliefs to stay. Uh, then try to stay and pursue. Why? Why? Because without a biblical worldview, we can't understand this universe that God created. There, I said it. Without a biblical worldview, you cannot understand. God is a God of order, and therefore he's the God of mathematics. He's the God of biology. He's the God of life, right? He's the God of the universe. And so many things that are being passed off to us today as quote-unquote truth that are devoid of a Christian worldview simply fall apart with, when asked just a few basic questions. Why? Because to depart from God is depart, depart from reality. And we know this. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.11 says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. We talk to them. We live out our lives in front of them. And we try to be an influence on them to show them who God is by how we live. Well, that's what we see. We see God is sending out his people to make disciples. But we also see in this text that Satan is there to oppose the effort. Satan is there to attempt to oppose the effort. Look at verses 6 to 8. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they, they came upon a certain magician, <coughs> a false prophet, sorry, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul. Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the, the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn away, turn the proconsul away from the faith. First of all, we see that this man, this, this, uh, this opposition, this bar Jesus guy or Elimus, he is Jewish. He is Jewish. So he has the look of religious faith, right? Now, I got to ask you this question, and, and this is going to be, a, this is a reoccurring theme all throughout the scriptures, but let me, let's just wrestle with it again today. If Satan is going to oppose the work of God, is he going to send in a whole bunch of people dressed in a specific uniform that say, Team Satan? Or team devil, team evil one, team evil. I don't know. Is he going to do that? I would argue that he's not going to do that. He's not going to do that because, because if we all saw a whole bunch of people come in with uniforms on that said team Satan, we would all immediately go, oh, that's, even an unbeliever might say, that's scary, that's spooky, these are evil, wicked people. And so as we go through and describe the characteristics of this bar Jesus fellow, I want you to understand the craftiness, the slyness, the intelligence of our adversary, the devil. He's not dumb. He's sending in someone who has the look and feel of being a religious man, a Jewish man. So let's have a look. He's Jewish. But remember, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who says the right words? Uh-uh. The one who dresses a certain way on Sundays? Nope. How about the one that goes to church? Well, 
That's a partially right answer. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the one who Jesus said um, is accepted. Will enter the kingdom of God. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So here we see this Jewish false prophet who's trying to steer the proconsul away from the things of God. His actions speak louder than his status. Anyway, he's Jewish. Secondly, we see that his name is Bar-Jesus. Now, this is one of the most ironic things in this passage because his name literally means son of the Savior. And if you listen to me while I read the text earlier, Paul is going to call him the exact opposite name. You, you can look. It's fine. You can look. <laughs> but he, he's, his name in the text, God has a sense of humor, I think. His name is Bar-Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves. And so his name literally means son of the Savior. Now, this is going to become important in a minute. It also says that he is a sorcerer, a magician, right? Now, uh, I have a lot. I've, I've, I've pent up a lot of thoughts about this whole thing over the years, and I'm probably wrong. But I, 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 let me share with you my thoughts, and you, you can test them and see what you think. Let's, let's think about today in 2022. If we were all going to go to a magic show and watch a magician perform, and that magician, you know, let's just say it's a guy, he's going to come out, he's going to have on, chances are, a very nice costume that's not going to look anything like street clothes. Can we just face it? There's going to be bedazzling and sequence, and there's going to be collars that are weird, and okay, so he's going to look strange. And he's probably going to have a gorgeous assistant, you know, maybe a female assistant. That's part of the act, too. That's part of the misdirection as well. And, and he's going to do things up there on the stage that are going to make you go, oh, my goodness, how did he do that? How did he make such and such disappear? How did he saw that person in half and they're still alive? How did, you know, how did that happen? But this is kind of the agreement that we have with the magicians, right? Nobody's sitting out in the audience going, he actually saw that lady in half, actually separated her. She lived through it. He actually reassembled her back together and took the, the divider out or whatever, and then she got out. No, we, we all know that there's, there's something going on. There's, there's deception. There's misdirection. While you're looking at the assistant, while she's putting a cloak over something, he's over there moving something around or doing something that you're not paying attention to. But there's a technique to what they do. And we all sit out in the audience and we say, boy, I'd like to see how he did that. We know it's not real, but we also don't understand how he did it. And so it's kind of tricking our brain and making, making, it, making us think that it's real. You with me? Okay. I want to argue this morning that a, a magician, a sorcerer, is also capable of doing the very same things linguistically. They can appeal to your emotions and get you so worked up in your emotions that, that you'll listen to an argument that's only half-cooked and not really the substance of what's really going on in a particular situation. Here's an example, and I don't mean this to be rude or, or offensive to anybody in the room because I know that some of, you, uh, some of you good folks are military folks, and I appreciate that and I honor that. But in, if you remember our world, our country, in post-9-11... Number one, as a pastor, I noticed a lot more people were coming to church right after 9-11. Did you guys notice that here in Ohio? It was true in Indiana. 
a lot of people came to church. But the other thing that I noticed was is that over time, we got really stirred up after those buildings fell down, after that Pentagon was hit, after that plane in Pennsylvania crashed, we were very elevated in our emotions and we wanted, we wanted someone to pay. We wanted to assign the blame and we wanted to get something done. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the truth was, but all I know is that we were told that, that certain people had weapons of mass destruction. We went over, we didn't find as many or any that we thought we found or and I don't know to this day whether that was a, a, a story that was made up to justify a war that we went to fight. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm in tension about that. I don't know what the, the reality of the situation is. What I'm simply pointing out is that there are people, and they exist today, and this, this is working on us every day, where they're trying to practice verbal misdirection or to, to stir us up with feelings and emotions of fear and dread, and then slip by us an argument that doesn't really make sense, but because we're so worked up in fear and anger about something, we'll act on it. I call that a form of sorcery or magic. Because a rational thinking person would just, re would just say, listen, let me just, let's calmly explain what would be the best course of action for us going forward. Here is all the data, and let's, but that's not what's happening. And I'm guessing that this Jewish false prophet, Bar-Jesus, son of the Savior, who was an advisor to the pro-council, knew exactly how to manipulate this man, Sergius Paulus. Have you ever noticed, have you ever watched any kind of documentaries? Maybe I'm just a nerd and I watch stuff that, that's nerdy. But there's, uh, there's people that, that claim that they're talking to your deceased loved one in some sort of a seance or whatever. By the way, this is strictly forbidden by God's word. We shouldn't be practicing this stuff. But there's people that do that. But when, when they're really examined, maybe they're videotaped or whatever, when they're really examined, they'll, they'll feed you a very general and vague piece of information about your loved one, and then they'll watch for your emotional response. Or will you give off any body language? And that will tell them, okay, I need to go this way with the conversation or I need to go that way with the conversation and they'll convince you after a time that they're actually talking to your deceased loved one when really what they're doing is they're reading your body language and reading your emotions it's a form of magic of sorcery of manipulation Micah 5.12 says, I will cut off sorceries from your land and, I will, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. This, is, this stuff is strictly forbidden by God. Why? Well, we're going to learn why in just a minute as Paul is going to condemn this guy. You see that he's also a false teacher. We talked about that. I'm not going to go into Matthew 7, but Matthew 7.15 to 20 talks all about false teachers, false prophets, and uh, how you can tell them. You can't tell them. You can't distinguish a false teacher or a false prophet by the way they look or their status. You know, what I mean by status is, if you, go out, if you go out in the city of Delaware, in the city of Delaware, there are many institutions that, that are flying under the heading of a church. Many. Dozens, perhaps. 
But there's not dozens of, ch of churches in this town that would adhere to a biblical understanding of Scripture. So how do you tell? You tell by their fruit, by what they're producing, what, the, what their beliefs are producing in their lives and the lives of others. And, um, and that's how you tell. In other words, you can wear the clothes of a Christian. You can say, I'm a Christian, and, and do all these things. But um, what are your actions? What, is, what is your doctrine and actions yielding in your life? So I, I give props to Satan on this one. Satan is very crafty in that here comes the very first missionary effort to go out and plant churches, and the, one of the first things they encounter is Bar Jesus, the son of the Savior, the advisor to the pro-council who's politically connected and has an ear to the pro-council, a guy who's Jewish, who has the look and feel of religion, a guy who's a magician, a guy who's able to manipulate and deceive and misdirect, a guy who is... It basically... Satan is throwing all of his human tricks at this one guy to stop Paul and Barnabas from having any influence on Cyprus. By the way, a pro-council, just so you know, a pro-council, uh, back in those days, the Roman Empire was governed by the emperor, yes, but also by the Roman Senate. And the Senate would decide about who would be a pro-council Senate, was, which is located in Rome, would, um, would decide uh, which leaders they would pick and put in these different territories to keep law and order. They were the, the end authority, the final authority on all civil matters. They couldn't wage war, but they could put down an uprising, and they had the power to, you know, to punish people and even to execute uh, capital punishment, if need be, to maintain law and order. Because the last thing that a pro-council wanted was to draw the attention of Rome because they were their territory was in disarray. So this pro-council, Sergius Paulus, was likely a wise man, says he's a learned man, because he put on his advisor team a Jew that he thought was giving him good advice about the Jews. Bar Jesus, son of the Savior. Satan's crafty. Satan is very, very crafty. But what do we see finally? We see God overcomes Satan's attempts. God overcomes Satan's attempts. Look at verses 9 to 12. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, oh, for any of you that think that Christians always should be nice and just say kind things to people all the time and whatever, um, uh, we are to use our words to build people up, but we are also to speak the truth in love. I don't know, I don't know how this falls into that category, um, but this is what he said. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, you have, you do, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? These are strong words that Paul is issuing to this bar Jesus character. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. It's going to be temporary. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about uh, seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Somebody stopped me after the first service and said, you know, it's interesting, Paul, when he was on, or Saul, when he was on the road to Damascus and he saw Jesus, he was blinded by what? What was he blinded by? 
light. He was blinded by a bright light. Uh, and he found it interesting, this fellow after first service, that, that bar Jesus was blinded by mist and darkness. Read into that whatever you will. It is interesting that there's a contrast there. Anyway, a few things to observe about this last passage. Number one, we see that this is the first time that Saul is called Paul. Saul is called Paul. Uh, now, um, do you, do you, have you ever met anybody that um, it's easy to mispronounce their name and they get really worked up when you do it? Like my last, my last name, when my poor daughter goes to an away game and they call uh, Ellie's name in the game, uh, it's going to get butchered every time. I've heard tied tie-dye, teed. My favorite one of all times is Tweety. Somebody call her. Announcing number 20, Ellie Tweety. Um, I don't think that ever happened to her, but it's happened to me. And I don't, you know, I just know that my last name is difficult to, difficult to get, right? Yesterday I spent, uh, we spent, Ellie had a friend over. I spent all day calling, Deanna is her name, and I called her Dina all day. I had to be corrected over and over again, not by her, but by my wife, it's Deanna. It's Deanna. Saul is named after the first king of Israel. His name in Hebrew means asked for or prayed for. But for, for you know, maybe I'm reading too much into the text, but for reasons that, uh, that I don't fully understand, they started to call him Paul. Maybe perhaps because that was a more Roman Empire acceptable name and they just misheard Saul, so they called him Paul. But Paul is from a Latin root that means small or humble. And he did not seem to correct them. In fact, that's what his name became. We know him as the Apostle Paul, not as the Apostle Saul. So I just thought that, I just thought that was interesting because Paul was apparently willing to give up his own name. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23 talks about how Paul is able to become all things to all people that he might preach Christ that he was willing to sacrifice his own name if it made it easier for him to get out the good news of the gospel. We also see that Paul calls out this false teacher for adding complexity and confusion to the message of Jesus Christ. Look what it says. It says, you son of the devil, you, you, enemy, of all you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Over, over time, if, you, if you've noticed carefully, the gospel has been corrupted time and time again by people that have come along and added to it or subtracted from it or complicated it or convoluted it in some manner. Um, one of our students that's on... Um, it's at college now, contacted this, contacted us this week, uh, us being Aaron and I, and said that there's a movement afoot on their campus. There's a movement of people that are trying to convince them that there's, there's Father God, but if there's Father God, there's also Mother God. And they've got this long list of verses that gives them a proof text. And so they're saying, hey, have you ever heard of this before? And how do I refute this? And all this kind of stuff. I'm happy that the, this young person contacted us and, and uh, Pastor Aaron was able to give them some resources. But you see what's going on there? People, there are folks out there that are just twisting and con convoluting and changing the gospel. 
Paul's later going to say in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Folks, when somebody looks at you and says, would a loving God, would a loving God do this, this, and this, and this, this, and this are very bad things? Would a loving God allow this, this, and this? And in that moment, perhaps you're going through some stuff and, you, and you're like, no, I don't understand how a loving God could allow that to happen. Then you're, not un, you're, not, you're choosing not to understand God as he's articulated himself in his word, as he's presented us himself to us in his word, and you don't understand the meaning of suffering and the blessing that it often is in our lives, even though as you go through it, it's very difficult. People are constantly trying to capture us and draw us away from God with smooth talk and empty philosophy. They're trying to make the pathway to the gospel, which is straight, the pathway to God and our understanding of the gospel, which is very simple. We're sinners. We, God made us, and he's perfect, and he cannot be, stand to be in the presence of sin. And so left to our own devices, we will die and be separate from him forever in a place called hell. But God... God in his love and mercy, God in his perfect character sent Jesus Christ to this earth to die on the cross for our sins, paying for everyone's sin who would trust in Jesus Christ. And he verified that by rising again on the third day and not re-dying, but, but ascending into heaven. This is the good news of the gospel, that everyone who believes in the name of Jesus will be saved. And yet people add to and convolute and twist and turn and make it complicated. I would tell you my BMV story for Friday, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell you that the BMV makes things complicated. I feel like every time I go there, I got to take every document that I own, and I get there, and I just, I'm just missing that one. That one thing. And I have it on my phone, but they say, no, it's got to be on paper. I could go home and print it off my phone onto the paper and then bring it back. Oh, it's got to be on paper. Okay. We see that this man is not a son of the Savior. Paul, in fact, calls him the exact opposite. He calls him a son of the devil. I find that very interesting in this text. Bar Jesus, the son of the Savior, Paul calls you son of the devil couple other things just these are quick the false prophet then is blinded check out the irony i think again god has a sense of humor this man bar jesus who was advising the pro-council giving the pro-council guidance now needs to find someone to hang on to their arm so that he can get out of the room see what god did there god's ways are not not without um, their justice this false prophet who once gave guidance to the Roman leader is now having to seek guidance to get out of the room. And then finally we see that the proconsul himself is saved. And thank God that that's the case because, because now that the proconsul's eyes have been opened, this man who was trying to be deceived by a, a, a son of, of the devil himself is now, his eyes are now open to the reality of his sin, the good news of the gospel, and the opportunity to put his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as these churches are being planted on Cyprus, 
this is obviously going to change the pro-council's understanding of, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is this something I should worry about, or is this something that I should support? This pro-council is, is going to be a key. This government leader is going to be a key to the thriving of the church on Cyprus. So, have you figured it out yet? Have you figured out where is the battle line? Where is the battle line between God and Satan now? Is it in the culture war? Is it in our institutions of higher learning and government? Where is the battle line? Well, here's my answer. The battlefront between God and Satan is located in the human heart. And I'm not talking about that, that muscle in your body that pumps blood. I'm talking about the core of who you are, and what you believe. As some people yield to God, they produce good fruit. They walk in the truth. As others oppose God, they produce rotten fruit, and they oppose the truth. But, as we see in this text, the tactics of Satan are no threat to God. They do produce chaos and confusion. They do make it more difficult for people to see clearly who God is and who Jesus is. But they do not they are not able to overcome God is. This is where the battle lines are. This is why our, the, the, our, our call to go out and spread the gospel is often relational. It's why we see Paul and Barnabas and others staying in cities for a long period of time to share and to do life with and, and to, to share and to lead others into an understanding of who Jesus is. They don't just drop the gospel on them and walk away, right? So some possible application. Perhaps the Lord has laid something on your heart, and that's fine. Go with that. But here's some things to think about if, if he hasn't. Number one, don't fall for the lie that if we are doing God's work, we won't face opposition. Again, I think there's a percentage of the church, not ours, but out there, that thinks that any opposition that a Christian would face in doing the Lord's work, well, that's God closing this door, and you need to go in a different direction. But we see from the example of Scripture this morning, that's not true at all. Jesus prepared us for this. He said we are going to face, we're going to be persecuted. We're going to face opposition. And um, we need to be prepared for that. Secondly, um, if you're able to, are you able to identify and refute false teachers? That's a skill that you need to acquire, right? Uh, there are many who call themselves Christians. Many who call themselves Christians, number one, and number two, have sidled themselves up to powerful leaders in our world and are influencing them down a bad road. Um, and we need to re recognize that. But if, if you don't know how to identify and refute false teachers, what actions are you willing to take? Give me a call. I'll help you. And then finally, just maybe take a minute this afternoon to think, what else can you learn from this text? Perhaps the lesson that you needed to hear today was, I do need to take risks. I, I am playing it safe each and every place that I go and whatever I do. I, I don't share the gospel because I'm afraid of what will happen to me or my job. Um, and, and so uh, perhaps the Lord is speaking to you in some other way. Listen to what he has to say. So, Father, now that we know where the battle lines are, it should, by your grace, give us more... It should equip us for the fight and the battle. Lord, we know that we do need people and in institutions. We do need Christians like Sergius Paulus to be government leaders. But the true battle is not going to be won when we pass a law. 
It's going to be one when uh, a human heart is changed, uh, a heart of stone is turned to heart of flesh, and how that happens is through our gospel witness in our lives and in our words. So, Father, help us to be the missionaries like Paul and Barnabas, even in Delaware, Ohio, and wherever we work and live. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.